We're going to continue this morning in Ephesians, and we're going to be looking at the first part of chapter 2. We've taken a couple of weeks uh, to begin this study, and we'll go through over the next several, and hopefully you'll find it to be beneficial. There's a lot of good good information. Philip and I were talking about uh, the, the breakdown, and as far as the what would be looked at each Sunday, and he got to looking at the calendar. He said, oh, no, you get that passage in Ephesians. He said, I was looking forward to that. So hopefully we'll do do this passage justice this morning because it's uh, got some good information here. The title of our lesson this morning is God's Amazing Grace. One of our shepherds, Jeff Treat, read a portion of the uh, text this morning, beginning at verse 4. Go ahead and open your Bibles there to chapter 2 if you haven't done so yet. I'd like to read... Uh, Uh, the beginning of that chapter, and then we'll skip down and pick up at verse 8 as well. Let's begin there uh, at verse 1. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now skip down to verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's sort of a sketch of those uh, ten verses, and uh, if you look at that, you can kind of see how Paul is setting this up. There in verses 1 through uh, 3, describe the way we were before we received this amazing grace. And then Paul started to explain how God saves sinners. He listed some truths about our union with Christ. Uh, He summarized how we're saved by grace, those well-known verses there in 8 and 9. And then he stated that our salvation is because of God's workmanship. So we could stop there and say, there's your first ten verses. But let's explore just a little bit more. This is a, um, a great, uh, great reading here by Paul, or a great writing by Paul that we're going to, to look at. Michelangelo, of course, the famous uh, sculptor, painter, architect, and poet during the High Renaissance, uh, He exerted an unparalleled influence on the development of Western art and considered to be the greatest living artist during his lifetime, and he has since been described as one of the greatest artists of all time. He was once asked what he was doing as he chipped away at a shapeless rock, and he replied, I'm liberating an angel from this stone. Now think about that for just a moment. I think that's what Paul is saying God is doing with us Here in the first part of Ephesians, he's chipping away. We're a big block of stone and he's creating an angel. And if you look at that, I think you can see that's exactly what he's talking about. The Apostle Paul would say that is uh, what God is doing in the life of every Christian. Takes every born-again believer and he fashions him or her to look more and more like Christ. In other words, God has not only brought us To himself and salvation, he continues to work in us after we are regenerated in him. And he is the one who is working in us, enabling us to do good works in Christ Jesus. 
I've listed a couple of uh, very well-known um, songs in our uh, uh, they're both in our songbook, and I asked Philip. I said, "Now I know you've mentioned songs over the last couple of three weeks, and I'm not trying to uh, to copy that, but this goes in very well uh, with our lesson this morning." Let's sing these songs together. You guys know these. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. You may notice I highlighted a couple of phrases there. In the first song, Amazing Grace, saved a wretch like me. And then in the second song, At the Cross, or as we sometimes know it, alas, and did my Savior bleed, the phrase, such a worm as I. You know, recently some renderings of these songs have substituted some words. Um, A wretch like me has been replaced by some to say saved and set me free. And such a worm as I may have been rewritten to say someone such as I. Uh, Now I look back in our book, both of them still have this uh, uh, same wording. But I have seen uh, times that those words have been changed. I kind of wondered about that. Uh, Wretch like me, that's not a phrase that we use a lot of times. And um, found a, a website that kind of explained this. In fact, uh, the author of this article, the article was entitled Revisiting Amazing Grace to Solve the Wretch Problem. And I want to read just a clip from uh, the author of that article. She says, people like me who don't self-identify as wretches have suggested alternate or alternate lyrics. Uh, these revisionists prefer to replace a wretch like me with saved and set me free or saved a soul like me or saved and strengthened me. A couple of these options lack the cadence of the original, but they solve the wretch problem. A little research reveals that the author, John Newton, may well have merited the designation wretch as he was a slave trader uh, who uh, repudiated his childhood faith and led a debauched personal life. He is said to have experienced a spiritual conversion during a 1748 storm that threatened his life and his slave ship. Soon after, he wrote the first stanza with the part, Wretch. In it, this author basically is saying, "Well, John Newton was a wretch, but I'm not." And I think a lot of times, maybe in our own lives, we say that same thing. We don't like to identify with wretch or worm, and so often we think that we're maybe above that or different uh, than that. Well, what does wretch actually mean? Uh, if you look it up in the the dictionary, there's a couple of different definitions. One of them simply says despicable or contemptible person. 
Now, you can see why some might have a problem with that. If you go up to someone, uh, instead of saying, how are you doing, you say you're a contemptible person or you're a despicable person, they might take uh, offense to that. And that's not the way we greet folks. But if we get at the very core and look at it, are we not contemptible, despicable people that God died for? And I think the wretch like me describes it well as John Newton would have written. You see, when folks say they can't self-identify as wretches or worms, they're not really disagreeing with the author of the hymn, and they're not even really disagreeing with me. They're disagreeing with God. Notice what it says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3. And before we became Christians, Paul says, "...were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Colossians 1 and verse 21 says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. I don't know. But that sounds sort of contemptible, doesn't it? That's coming from God's Word. And He says, this is who you were. You don't have to stay that way. Now, why is this important to know? And I think it's important because I feel most folks maybe misunderstand how God thinks. They think if they've really messed up in their lives, God could never love them. And these are the folks that might say, if I ever came to church, the roof would cave in. And I don't know that they're trying to be mean. Maybe they're just trying to save the expense of cleaning up afterwards. But you probably have heard someone uh, make that statement. But then there's the folks who maybe sing the hymn, Just As I Am, and think that I'm good enough to get to heaven just as I am. You may have talked to folks on both sides there. You're all familiar with the name Warren Buffett and his... uh, Great wealth that he's accumulated over the years. And he just recently announced that he was going to give the fortune to charity. And that's finally come to fruition within the last little bit. He's worth about $44 billion in stocks. And he's giving away $37 billion of that to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And as he was presenting the gift to the Gates, he made this remark. There's more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. Now, he probably said that tongue-in-cheek, didn't he? But I wonder if that's how most of us think in our lives. It's the good things that we do, the good works, the good deeds, the things that we give that will get us to heaven. But come Judgment Day, I wonder how many will be in for a surprise knowing that it's only the blood of Christ through that blood that we can gain entrance. And that's exactly what Paul is sharing with them here. And it doesn't matter if if we don't self-identify as a wretch or a child of wrath or an enemy of God. But without Jesus, let's be honest, that's who we are. For we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, and notice that word. We're going to look at that at the end of our lesson this morning. But that word is is huge. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2, we looked at that a moment ago. That was verses 4 and 5. God saved us not because we deserve to be saved. And why is He so willing to save us? Because He loves us. For God so loved the world that, and you can fill in the rest of that verse, He sent His only Son to die on that cross. 
You see, lots of people struggle to understand God's thinking about this. And in fact, I think it's a common misunderstanding. We think that we develop a good record and give it to God and then He owes us. We do the good stuff and then God owes us a place in heaven. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying the exact opposite. He says this is how God thinks. He develops a good record and gives it to us. Then we owe Him. God developed His good record when... He died on the cross through Jesus Christ. And now because He died on the cross, we owe Him. That's what Paul is sharing with the Ephesians. Why is this a good thing? I think there are two reasons. First, it recognizes reality. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We mentioned that phrase earlier, found there in Romans chapter 3. You know, Mark Twain once said, Everyone is a moon and has a dark side which he never shows to anybody. And that's probably true. It's, it's really no surprise that people do sin. Sin's a part of the world. We shouldn't be surprised. Maybe we're sometimes disappointed. Maybe we wish that it wouldn't happen, but it shouldn't come as a surprise. So it recognizes reality. All have sinned. And then secondly, I think it removes all doubt. I read the story of a man who was on his deathbed. He looked up at his wife and he said, tell me that I've been a good man. Why do you think he said that particular phrase and why did he say it on his deathbed? It was simply because he was worried he had not done enough good things in his life to obtain heaven as his eternal home. You know, earlier in the sermon I mentioned that there are two uh, meanings for the word wretch. Uh, The one we looked at earlier was contemptible or despicable. But the other meaning of the word is this, an unfortunate or unhappy person. You see, people who doubt that they're good enough, they literally feel wretched, do they not? And the unhappiness that brings to their life. There was a retired minister who had said at many deathbed scenes, and he once said, I've seen so many people at the end of their lives. They're so remorseful, and they ask themselves, what am I going to do now about my past And basically what Paul is saying here in this first part of Ephesians, he said, it's okay, I've got you covered. We've worried about our past and God says it doesn't matter. You turn to me. I'll take care of things. I'll take care of your past. But you know, too often, too many Christians fall into that trap. They think they've been good enough to be good enough to get into heaven. Paul's saying that's not it. God's amazing grace it's what's going to save you. I mentioned two songs earlier. We still have them there on the, on the screen. I want to share another song with you, and we're going to finish our time this morning looking at, uh, at this uh, particular song. It was recorded by a gentleman named Gordon Moat. I don't know how many of you are familiar with, uh, he was a country gospel singer and um, blind since birth. Um, but he wrote a song entitled, When Mercy Walked In. Think about just a moment, a courtroom scene, and where you're standing before that judgment seat and you're the condemned party. Now, that's not an unfamiliar scene because Scripture mentions that. We read standing before the judgment seat of God. What would you say? How would you plead your case? Would the court find you not guilty? How would that look? How would that end up? knowing perfectly well that you are guilty and deserving death, then all of a sudden, mercy walks in. 
Listen to the, the verse, the first verse of that song. It says, I stood in the courtroom, the judge turns my way. It looks like you're guilty, now what do you say? I spoke up your honor, I have no defense. But that's when mercy walked in. Mercy walked in and pleaded my case. Called to the stand, God's saving grace. The blood was presented that covered my sin, forgiven when mercy walked in. Praise the Lord, I stood there and wondered how could this be that someone so guilty had just been set free. My chains were broken. I felt born again the moment that mercy walked in. The blood was presented that covered my sins, forgiven when mercy walked in. Think about that for a moment. When mercy, when grace, when Jesus took my place on that cross. I want to look at four things that, uh, that mercy does as we conclude our thoughts this morning. Number one, mercy brings forgiveness. As our text pointed out earlier, fundamentally God's mercy is about forgiveness. And it is a fundamental and prime requirement. I think we often think that we're We'll be able to approach God on our own merit. And it's human nature to think that way. It's human nature to be proud. But the Bible shatters any illusions of the thought that we can obtain heaven on our own. And Paul's doing that very thing here. Even our very best, our absolute best is not enough. Romans chapter 8 and verse 8 says, Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot Please God. And so if we were to have or to ever have a relationship with God, our prime need and our first need is the forgiveness that we gain from that. You know, sin is a relationship breaker, isn't it? How many times has sin caused you problems or difficulties in a relationship? Think about that for just a moment. Whether that's a family member, a co-worker, a neighbor, a friend. Sin enters into the picture and it sometimes damages a relationship how much more so in our relationship with the lord sin is a relationship breaker however god's mercy means that he does not treat us as our sins deserves because of his mercy we're forgiven an incredible point i think we need to remember and we probably do mercy comes without limits it comes to us with no limits David talks about mercy without limits in Psalms 86 and verse 5. This is a prayer that's recorded of of David. And it says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Abundant in mercy. There's no limits. He talks about the abundant love in this verse. As someone once said, there's a wideness in God's mercy that is wider than the greatest sea. And so I know it will cover even me. It's hard for us to imagine something without bounds, isn't it? Everything that we know has limits. Everything that we know is finite. God introduces something that is infinite. Something has no limits. In fact, God's uh, is so great. In fact, so great is God's mercy that it's almost inexpressible. God's mercy knows no limit, and there is no one who is beyond his saving power. That's why it's so important for us to grasp this. When we think about God's character, we need to remind ourselves of the extent of God's mercy because we all need that mercy. I think a third thing, it's it's available to all. The Hebrew writer in chapter 4 and verse 16 says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. More precisely in this passage, it's available to all who call on God. You know, our doctrine, our theology, Scripture is so important. We're to interpret Scripture wisely. We're to interpret it in, in, in a way that is pleasing to God. But I wonder so many times if we start arguing with people, if we start bickering and looking at things that maybe aren't that really important, that we forget about the bigger scope. God's mercy and that saving power that's available to all. Do we sometimes lose sight of the fact that the offer of God's mercy is free and available to all? Let's not limit God's mercy. If we're not careful, we can do this in our minds, in our lives, and even in our church life. And I think sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we feel down deep that there are certain people who are somehow beyond God's mercy. But it is available to all. And then a fourth thing, it's guaranteed to us. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. I don't know if you read Philip's article in the bulletin this morning yet or not, but he recites a prayer and talks about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I thought it was a a, a beautiful article. Take time to read that. From this passage, we see that when we're born again, we're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. With the Spirit, we see a merciful God and we see the free and abundant mercy He showers upon us. It's a guarantee. And how refreshing, therefore, to hear that God's mercy is guaranteed. There again in Psalm 86, we read verse 5, skip down to verse 7. David says, in the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you will answer me. Here we see that David is absolutely certain of God's response. There's no question or doubt in his mind. And for Christians, there should be no doubt in our minds either. God hears and shows mercy. And we can be guaranteed of that. Scripture points that out. Paul says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 11, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's mercy which holds no bounds or no limits. God's amazing grace. Paul shares here in the Second chapter of Ephesians, some wonderful things. This first part is rich in talking about how God saves. Today, I'm glad to be in the but God category. And you think, well, that may sound just a little strange, but let me, let me explain that. All through the course of human history, we find where God stepped in and reversed the ordinary circumstances. Notice these examples. Way back in day one, Adam sinned and he should have died an immediate physical death, but God stepped in and changed his natural position. Noah became drunk and should have lost all favor with God, but God stepped in and had mercy upon his soul. Daniel was thrown into a den of lions and should have been eaten alive by the king of beasts, but God stepped in and he closed the lions' mouths and made them lie down like lambs. We mentioned David earlier. David sinned and lost all of his joy, but God stepped in and renewed and restored his spirit. He said, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy mercies. Blot out my transgressions and wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Create in me a clean heart and renew within me a right spirit. What a beautiful prayer by David. 
Hezekiah was sick and he was told that his time was short. But God stepped in and gave him 15 more years of living. Jesus Christ was nailed to Calvary's cross where He died a cruel death for you and for me. The sun refused to shine. The grave started shouting, but God stepped in and He made sense out of nonsense. Christ died on Friday, but He rose again on Sunday. And I can celebrate today because I serve a God who rescues and reverses. And you serve that same God. Is that not exciting? Does that not give us hope? Does that not make us happy beyond measure? Because of the but God factor, I've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Because of the but God factor, my spirit rejoices and my hope is renewed. Because of the but God factor, I have friendship and fellowship with the Father. Because of the but God factor, I've been forgiven and made all over again. Because of the but God factor, I have joy that nobody can take away. Because of the but God factor, I have been justified and sanctified, satisfied and qualified, edified and dignified, fortified and gratified. Because of His great love wherein He has saved us, we have union and communion with Him. We have a relationship and fellowship with Him. We have peace with God, access to God, and hope in God. That's what Paul was telling them in Ephesians. Look at the hope you have through God's amazing grace. I think everyone in this audience this morning probably realizes that. But Paul's reminding the church at Ephesus, and we need that reminder from time to time. God's amazing grace. We still have that today, and I am so thankful for that. That gives me hope. I don't know your exact situation this morning. I know many in the audience are Christians. You're striving to live that Christian life, grow closer to God each and every day. Continue to do that. Work on that daily. Maybe we can pray for you this morning we could assist you in any way in that way maybe you're here this morning you've never put on christ through baptism what a wonderful opportunity to begin that walk with god this morning to receive that amazing grace this morning today might be that day if you're subject to the invitation won't you come as we stand and sing